Welcome to Agape Ministries Podcasts, a whole new way of thinking. Episode 115, part one of the talk given by John Bell, entitled Moving the Contemplative Heart to Action. Okay, right. If I become inaudible, then please... um indicate if I become incomprehensible then talk to a friend. <laughs> I feel that, that in a way there's a bit of a raw deal going on between Scotland and England because in the past week we've had three big names in Scotland, uh, Marcus Borg and Richard Rohr and the Pope and this is a poor substitute coming <laughs> to, to England and when I look at the illustrious people who have spoken uh, in this place before, then I'm in a very different league. I'm not an academic. I'm not somebody whose full-time vocation is to deal with matters of spirituality. Um, and I'm certainly not a pontiff. And uh, I have a curious job in that a third of my time is spent dealing with church music and church musicians. And a third is spent on liturgy and lay training, particularly in the way that people can invest themselves with a healthy approach to scripture. And a third of the time is spent on matters of spirituality. And I do this with three other people, two of whom are field workers and one's an administrator, working under the aegis of the Iona community based in Glasgow. And I'm the one who travels. The colleague I've had longest, about 25 years, gets vertigo if he crosses the road. So he stays at home and I'm the one who, who um, moves around. And my interest in spirituality is a kind of odd thing. I suppose it began when, after being ordained, I was in charge of, of youth work for the Church of Scotland in Glasgow and the West. And at that time, because there were very few people involved in any kind of Christian education, I was occasionally asked to, to, to arrange other things, particularly for adults as well as for young people. And uh, I'm a Presbyterian, that's why I speak this way. Uh, <laughs> and, and Presbyterians, at that time, if they wanted to know anything about spirituality, had to ask for a Catholic nun or a Catholic priest. The kind of supposition was that I think the presumption was that Roman Catholic priests and nuns had spirituality and Protestants had sexuality. <laughs> we couldn't give them much of our stuff, but we could take some things from them. And so if, and this was the case, when uh, I, I began to do anything in this area, I invited a lovely priest called Jock Dalrymple to come from Edinburgh to Glasgow and it was very unusual in the, in the late 70s to have a Catholic priest talking to people about, about spirituality. But he was a, a great man. He published a book called um, Simple Prayer, which has just been republished by Darton, Longman and Todd. Magnificent book, magnificent book, which is devoid of clerical language uh, because Jock worked in a very ordinary parish in Edinburgh. Simple Prayer. And, and made a fascinating impact in my life. So today I'm going to uh, look this morning at the individual and the community and I'm going to, 
to look at three different aspects of, of widening our spirituality, which I presume is why people uh, have come here, to, to move away just from the self and God, to look at God as community. This is not going to be a thesis on the Holy Trinity. It's something which in some ways is much simpler, but may seem more complex, that in God there is community. And then I'm going to look at the community within ourselves, and then the community within the church. And in the afternoon, we'll widen that to how we become compassionate about God's world. And so I want to begin with a, a simple song, and then I'll, I'll say two prayers, one of which, for a long time, we thought in Scotland was written by George MacLeod, who was the founder of the Aina community. But it may have come from Tubby Clayton, who was the man who formed Talk H um, in All Hallows by the Tower in London, and then a prayer uh, for the day. So this is the song with which we begin, and I'll sing it once, then people will join in, and then we'll do it in two parts. I'll have this part and this part, just singing after each other. Be still and know that I am God. 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 Be still and be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and be that I am God. Be still and know that I am, that I am. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. O Christ, the master carpenter, who at the last, through wood and nails, purchased our whole salvation, wield well your tools in the workshop of your world, so that we who come rough-hewn to your bench may here be fashioned to a truer beauty of your hand. Lord, set your blessing on us as we begin this day together. Confirm in us the truth by which we rightly live. Confront us with the truth from which we wrongly turn. We ask not for what we want, but for what you know we need as we offer this day and ourselves to you and for you, through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Amen. The Lord be with you.
I'm going to begin in a rather odd place. This uh, session will last until 11.15 when we have a break. Um, there will be a conversation we'll have in the middle of it. If there are questions people wish to ask, then I'll take them when we come back after the break. I think sometimes you know, speakers finish and they say any questions and there's this great embarrassment because people don't want to ask what they think is either a presumptuous or a naive question. But if they have the support of people who over coffee or tea say, well, I never understood that either, then people are encouraged to, to be able to ask the question. But I'm beginning in a rather odd place. It's called Kilmarnock. It's the, <laughs> the town from which I come. It's a town which in the 60s had eight major industries that exported all over the world. Um, in the 90s, that was down to one, Johnny Walker, who's been leaving Kilmarnock since about 1843. And sadly, because of Diageo taking over, um, the company has now fled his home ground. And so the town is a bit of a barren place with regard to work. But this is 1984. And it concerns two women, one of whom is called Marion and the other is called Sandra. And Marion had three weeks prior to them meeting in the street, uh, had lost her husband who was called David. He'd had a heart attack, he died. And she's back out and about and she meets Sandra Dunlop, who was a school friend of hers. And Sandra shows immediate embarrassment because she had learned that David had died, but she'd neither phoned Marion nor sent a card. She wasn't at the funeral, she couldn't go, and she just was embarrassed. And, and she begins to blurt out her embarrassment and says, Marion, I'm really sorry. I know that David died three weeks ago. I should have got in touch with you, and I just feel awful about it. And Marion said, that's okay. She said, you know, lots of people got in touch with us, and... In a bereavement, not everybody feels comfortable about approaching those who have been bereaved. So don't worry. So Sandra said, but how, how are you anyway? And Marion said, well, it was a very sudden death. It was a massive coronary. And um, we were told after the post-mortem that had he survived, then he would have lived an incredibly limited life. And he was a man who loved being gregarious. And, and, and that would have been very sad to see him. So maybe it's a mercy in a way that, that he went when he did. And we've been supported by the prayers of the church and by the kindness of people, so we're going through grieving. But things are okay. And then she said to Sandra, so how are you, Sandra? And Sandra said, oh, everybody's fine, yeah, family, uh, uh, happy at my work. Uh. And Marion said, no bereavements in your part. No, she said, apart from my father. And Marion said, your father? And Sandra said, yeah, but that's about uh, seven or eight months ago. And Marion said, I never saw that in the newspaper. No, she said, but it doesn't matter. And then Sandra said, but my father, do you remember my father, Marion? And Marion said, of course I remember your father. She says, I remember he used to work in the butchers in King Street. And you'd walk past and look in through the window and you'd see your father standing there with a striped uniform, pork pie hat on, and up to his elbows in mincemeat or kidney or liver or whatever. Oh, she said, of course. She said, in fact, I can remember your father more easily than I remember David. Now, here's a woman whose husband has died three weeks previously, and yet she's able to remember her school friend's father more easily 
than she can her own husband. It's not an unusual syndrome, but it's a syndrome which people fear to talk about in case they're showing disrespect to the one whom they loved who has died. And it's not something which needs depth analysis by a psychoanalyst or by a psychiatrist. There are a number of things that can cause it. And, and as I'm telling it, people might you know, have a kind of bulb light up in their mind if it ever happened to them. For some, if it's a very painful death, then particularly in this case, having seen her husband die uh, and be in uh, agony as he went out of this world, not a pleasant thing to remember. So maybe the, the last picture is one which one wants to mask. For some people, it's been an awkward relationship that they've had with the person whom they loved and, and there's a guilt about the death. But this and other perhaps more evident reasons were not the case here. And it intrigued me because Marion was my mother and David was my father. And when my mother told us about this, I thought, what kind of marriage have they had for 34 years and she can't remember what my father looks like? <laughs> now, I wasn't quite as obstreperous as that, you know. But it was an interesting thing, and we talked through it. And then gradually it became evident why she couldn't remember my father. She had only one picture of Sandra Dunlop's father, inherited from her childhood, and kept going as she passed by the butcher shop in King Street. Maybe for 30 years she'd seen Alec Dunlop, framed as it were, by this window, with his striped uniform, port pie hat, and working with butcher meat. She'd never seen him when he was fishing. She'd never seen him at the bowling club. She'd never seen him with his Masonic apron on. Probably his wife hadn't either, for that matter. <laughs> she'd never seen him when he had his teeth out. All she'd seen was this man who was framed by a window, as if in a photograph. Now, her husband, David, she had been married to him for 34 years. They'd gone out for two years before then. Which picture does she choose? Because she could remember him in his demob suit when he came back from the army. She could remember him in his gardening clothes because that was his first job. She could remember him in his wedding suit. She could remember him in his birthday suit. <laughs> she could remember him when he was deliriously happy as when it was revealed to him that he'd become the father of twins, my younger brothers. She could remember him when he was beside himself with grief, when his young brother, Tom, died at the age of 14 through pneumonia. She could remember him, as my brothers and I did, as a, as a man who did the most extraordinary things. My father worked in a factory for most of his life. And he'd come back home at five o'clock, and as men, some men tend to do, they come back and they sit down in front of the television. And our chairs did not have a high back on them. So we watched the television and his eyes would kind of gradually close. And then his, his neck would go back. And having nothing to catch it, you know, he'd be asphyxiating himself. <laughs> and at the same time, as his head went back, he'd, he, had a, he had a denture plate at the front, two teeth at the front. This would come down his chin, you see. <laughs> I used to bring people home from school to watch my father sleep. <laughs> Just wait, just wait until he, you'll see them coming down. And he had this, he had this amazing uh, way with, with, with unusual people. There was a woman in his church. I won't name her completely. Mar <laughs> Margaret. I mean, because people might know Kilmarnock. 
This was a woman of whom it might be said she had a rather unfortunate temperament. Others would have used more graphic terms. <laughs> she, was, she was really a bit of a targe. And she uh, was a very unpleasant woman. I don't know what had happened in her childhood, but she just was unpleasant. And she went to his church, sang in the choir, looked as if she had locked jaw when she was singing. And her name was Margaret. And what, what was worse was that when she was in her 60s, she, uh, for reasons unknown, she lost, first of all, one leg and then another to gangrene. And so she ended up in a wheelchair having to be pushed to the church and to other places. And the unpleasantness just exuded from her. My father used to go up to her and he'd go down on one knee so that his eyes were level with her and say, Maggie, on Friday night, I'm coming to your house and we're going dancing. <laughs> Any other man would have been slapped in the face by this woman. But she just roared and laughed. And I think it was because he knew that nobody had ever kind of played with the feminine ever in her. Men had been scared to, to represent any humour towards her. And actually she enjoyed having her leg, that's an unfortunate term, <laughs> having her leg pulled. It was a pleasant thing. So you've, you've all these pictures, you've all these pictures. Which one is going to be the one that you remember? The sign or the indication that we know someone well is that we will be unable to frame them in one picture. The people who I know best and the people who you know best are people who we will have seen in a hundred different circumstances. People who have laughed with us, people who have been angry with us or in whose company they've been angry. People who we will have seen a different side of because we've gone with them away for a couple of days on retreat or on holiday. I spent eight days recently in holiday with a friend of mine. He, for two years, will share the house in which I live before he goes to work in Brussels. And because I'm not at home very much, I don't see much of him. We went on holiday and all these facets of his character become very clear. And there's a, a deepening of the relationship because you see the person out of his job, me out of my job, Swimming in the sea in Cornwall, climbing hills, going for bike rides, discussing music. And, and you discover all these, these sites. The people who we, we think we know well, we think we know well, are sometimes those of whom we've only a one-dimensional picture. Now, I live near, arguably, one of the best fish and chip shops in the west of Scotland. It's called the Philadelphia Restaurant at Kelvin Bridge in Glasgow. If you're going to Loch Lomond, it's left-hand side. <laughs> and, and there's a woman in there who, for about 10 years, worked behind the counter. She was a fairly small woman. She always wore a white kind of nylon overall. She had dyed blonde hair, vivid red lipstick, and a gold tooth uh, and towards the top and the front. And when I went, I lived, I've always lived in community, and sometimes we would patronise local industry and go and have fish and chips. So I would go and maybe once a month would appear in this fish and chip shop and it was almost like a kind of litany. She would say, what's yours? And I would say, um, three fish suppers, a vernacular expression for fish and chips. And then she'd say, salt and vinegar, and I'd say, salt and vinegar and two, and just salt and one. She'd say, are you busy? And I'd say, yes. 
And then she would name the price, the only thing which changed over 10 years. <laughs> and, you know, month after month, the same thing would happen. Now, about six years into this intimate relationship with the woman behind the counter, I'm in uh, Sainsbury's, and I turn between dog food and washing powder and bump into this woman. And I have no idea what to say. I can hardly say three fish suppers. <laughs> and I realise I don't know her name. I don't know whether she's married or single. I don't know whether she's a family. We have some inane conversation about the virtues of fairy snow over Perzel. <laughs> and then we go. Now, had hitherto had you said, do you know the woman who works in the Philadelphia? Oh, I'd say that wee woman with the blonde tail. Of course. Know her very well. See her once a month. But in actual fact, I knew only a fraction of her. I knew just that bit, which was an extract of her whole being. My dentist I know a bit better. <laughs> he is a person who I've seen at Scottish Opera. He's a person who I've seen when he's been hill climbing. I know his first name. I call him by his first name. He's the man who asks interesting questions when it's singularly impossible to give him any answer. <laughs> I know his taste in music because he plays either jazz or classical music when you're in his surgery. I know, but the people I really know best are those with whom there have been many, many experiences. Now, this is the point where, if this were a talk to children, as given in some churches by vicars or ministers, there would be a kind of astronomic transition. You know, the minister or the priest is saying, talking to children about an internal combustion steam engine. And he says, you know, boys and girls, God is a bit like an internal combustion statement. <laughs> but I want to make that bridge between our experience of people and our experience of God because it seems to me that this is something which God has ordained. It's not an uncanny or an irregular leap. It's something which is biblically verifiable. God has chosen to relate to us, not as a computer to data or a disembodied being to some distant, inert mass, but God has chosen to relate to us person to person. And we see that right at the beginning of the truth story in Genesis, where God is in the garden and Adam is hiding, and God says, where are you, Adam? And God calls Adam into a personal relationship. He has to respond to his maker. And all through the Old Testament scriptures and into the New, we see this God who engages us in questions, responding to requests or responding to commands and meeting people at different times in their experience. And when God decides to come in the flesh in Christ, then he comes person to person in order that in that sometimes untidy and unpredictable nature of relationship, person to person, we might be able to relate to our maker. 
And because it's a person-to-person relationship, the expectation has to be that there will be different moments in which we see a different side of God, a different picture of Christ, a different experience of the Holy Spirit. And those who want to claim that there is only one picture of God, to my mind, are the most dangerous in the church. Those who say, I know exactly what God is like. I know exactly what God wants. Because, friends, that God is smaller than our theology. The God whom we can circumscribe with our intellect or our imagination is smaller than ourselves. And God is always bigger and more profound than our deepest religious, spiritual, or theological insight. So thank you for taking the time to listen to these episodes. Our prayer is that as you listen and reflect on these teachings, that you'll be encouraged to continue your journey to maximize your potential to have a good and a happy life. So sign in again next week for more teaching on how you can follow the Jesus way to experience your life as filled with meaning, purpose and joy. So God bless and stay safe.